Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 53 for the week ending Monday, April 18th, 2016. Now, this is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital, and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masugu, and once again, I'll be rolling solo today, but happy birthday to my homeland, Zimbabwe. Yes, indeed, it's Zimbabwe's Independence Day, and I'm excited because it coincides with us continuing to celebrate our first full year of being on air as a podcast. And not only that, but dominating iTunes as the top-ranked African tech podcast in key African markets like Kenya, Nigeria, Ghana, and South Africa. Africa, shout out to you. Thank you all for making that happen. An extra special welcome to you if you're new to the show. Uh, to catch up on all our past episodes, head straight to africantechroundup.com. You'll find them all there. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for useful news updates and commentary. Our handle on both platforms is at African Roundup. On Facebook, you'll find us at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. But before we get on with the show, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or MP3 player. Now check out a book called Really Professional Internet Person by YouTuber Jen McAllister. To get the book for free, just click through to audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech. That's audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech. Right, now stick around till the end of the show because just as we did last week, in place of this week's discussion, I'm going to be taking stock of the past year we've had on the show and I'll be sharing highlights from the year that's been. Now, this time though, I'm going to select moments from our African Tech Conversations series, which features relaxed, in-depth conversations I've had with leading entrepreneurs, innovators and thought leaders from Africa's tech scene. I'm talking people like Mteto Nyati of MTN, Alan Not Craig Jr., Matsi Mudise, Ashley Vizi, Justin Spratt, just to name some. So you can look forward to me playing out some cool clips and reflecting on some of the useful insights I gleaned from these individuals. But for now, it's straight into this week's news. Now, we start with an update on the .Africa top-level domain. A U.S. court has granted the Mauritius-based .Connect Africa Trust, DCA, a preliminary injunction preventing ICANN from letting South African ZA Central Registry from administering the domain until the dispute is settled. Now, as you probably know, this battle between ZA Central Registry and .Connect Africa Trust has been going on for something like two and a half years. And in March, ZA Central Registry was given the go-ahead by the Internet Corporation for assignment names and numbers I can to begin operating as a domain's official registry. Now, DCA, of course, not content to let this go, headed to a California district court and was granted a temporary restraining order in March against ICANN, preventing the delegation of .Africa until a court hearing uh, this month. Now, on the 12th of April, that court granted a preliminary injunction, quote, barring ICANN from delegating the rights to .Africa until this case is resolved. Now, I've said it before on the show, uh, DCA definitely having their ducks in a row in terms of um, their litigation game. Uh, it looks like this one's going to go right down to the Y. In the meantime, Africa will just have to wait to, to make use of .Africa. We'll be keeping a close eye on the story for you to be sure. Now to South Sudan next, where MTN is reportedly set to lay off over half of its local staff there. 
as well as a significant number of its foreign workers due to cancelled projects. Now, it's no secret that the MTN group is hurting at the moment for various reasons. Now, MTN has pinned the cancellation of their expansion projects in South Sudan on fluctuations in the currency, as well as changes in monetary policy that they didn't expect that have uh, obviously affected their their bullish attitude towards growth within South Sudan. It's a little bit sad. However, in these uncertain times, it would come with the territory of doing business uh, and being a a multinational as MTN is. All the best to the poor people who will be losing their jobs. Here's to hoping they find something new to do soon. Meanwhile, South African recruitment startup Giraffe is riding high. Now, you'll recall a few weeks ago, uh, we had a chat with one of its co-founders following the company's win at the Speed Stars World Competition a few months ago, where they walked away with 500000 US dollars worth of investment. And uh, now they've successfully raised a seed round of funding led by the Silicon Valley venture firm Omidyar Network. Now, Giraffe exists basically to, to match people to medium-skilled jobs in major business sectors within South Africa. And um, this concept has obviously been presented on a global stage and... Um, Clearly, lots of people thinking they're onto a really good idea. It's founded by former employees of the telecommunications consultancy Delta Partners, and they're they're essentially targeting both blue-collar and white-collar workers who typically earn around 3,000 to 15,000 rand a month. And what they then do is try and match these individuals to jobs in corporate South Africa through what they call an intelligent automated platform which is, of course, mobile-based. Now, they've got this algorithm that builds, it inputs requirements from employers, and spits out the best candidates based on a range of criteria. And so good luck and well done to the team at Giraffe. Here's to hoping the money they've uh, secured in their seed round goes a long way to securing their long-term success. To Nigeria next, where the government has just announced its intent to enact rules preventing data from being hosted abroad once local data centers build sufficient capacity. Nigeria's Minister of Communications, Adebayo Shitu, has reportedly said that once uh, Nigerian data centers have enough capacity, he intends to make it illegal to host data abroad. Now, I understand where he's coming from, but one, this isn't going to happen anytime soon. Two, the cost of hosting data in Nigeria will have to come down significantly in order for that to be a viable option for many companies uh, and individuals. And finally, it also has uh, disturbing implications on data security and as far as uh, government control is concerned. I don't imagine that too many companies would enjoy a scenario where the Nigerian government has unprecedented access to their data as well as the power to shut them down should they fall out of favor of things like that. I'm not saying that would happen in Nigeria. I am saying that there are countries in and around Africa that demonstrate the dangers of allowing too much government control around the storage and indeed the transmission of data. It is an interesting glimpse into the psyche of someone as high-ranking as the Minister of Communications, however, and probably something to watch. That said, like I said, I wouldn't expect any of this to happen anytime soon. And finally, Rwandans are set to benefit from yet another mobile money innovation. This time, uh, MobiCash Rwanda is poised to roll out an electronic wallet service. Now, what they're trying to do is provide formal financial services to all Rwandans using the mobile banking platform that they launched uh, last year. Uh, electronic wallets will be an innovation and add-on to that platform. And according to MobiCash, they are doing their best to remove all the barriers that are currently barring people 
uh, especially people who are in peri-urban and rural areas from accessing formal financial services. I'd say it's a good thing. Um, we're not hearing as much news around the mobile money scene as we did in 2015. I think there's a cooling off that's that's going on as therefore predicted sometime last year and on the show. Some of the better resourced platforms and services in that space will will generally tend to win out over some of the smaller players that probably came in under-resourced and uh, didn't grow a user base fast enough. Uh, I'd be betting on Moby Cash Rwanda to do, to do pretty well given their current reach and the traction they've so far enjoyed. That said, if you're in Rwanda and you have insights into how this, uh, you know, how mobile money has changed the lives of ordinary citizens, please give us a shout. We'd love to hear all about it. Uh, give us a shout on Twitter at African Roundup. So that's the week's news. Now, as promised, once again, in place of this week's discussion, uh, we're continuing to celebrate our first birthday here on the African Tech Roundup by revisiting some memorable moments from our African Tech Conversation series. Now, what I'm going to do is play out some audio clips from the conversations I've had over the past year with some pretty deep folks who, are, who have a lot to say and a lot to share about Africa's tech um, ecosystem. And um, I'll reflect briefly on some of the insights we've gleaned from these individuals. We'll start with a clip from my chat with MTN South Africa CEO, Mteto Nyati. This happened a few months before the company's recent troubles in Nigeria began. And so, of course, I didn't get to ask him uh, tough questions around that. But here he is speaking to MTN's mission to survive the changes overtaking mobile telcos by trying to update their business model. I also asked him whether the business world that actively worked against uh, the achievement of his childhood aspirations, you know, to grow in corporate and, and be the player he is today. I asked him whether the world he grew up in, in terms of transformation, is any different to the world he operates in as an executive today. Now, take a listen. What does MTN make of the trend towards free internet access? You know, ventures like Project Isizwe, exciting from a consumer standpoint, but I'm wondering what kind of conversations you're having about that and how involved you are in delivering free internet, given how disruptive it's being to your traditional business, I think, in, in telecoms, how involved is MTN, for example, in that trend? I'm looking at government. I'm looking at social trends towards the adoption of tech and the internet use and democratizing that space. What are the sort of conversations you're having at MTN around those issues? You're asking a very difficult question. For example, if, if the, the, my way of continuing to exist, you are asking me to, to make that thing free. So, Basically, the thing that is supposed to keep me alive is the one you're saying I must make free. So it, it becomes a, a challenge because our business model is about I'm providing you with the connectivity, but at least you need to pay for it. You know. So, but what what we have seen happening is that we partner with organizations that want to make that possible. You know, for example, some of the sites that uh that are education related site we make them zero rated in partnership with some organizations that uh, you know for example wikipedia making wikipedia zero rated that that's a very very important value to most students out there so there are sites like that where as a company we have chosen to partner with organization and make them zero rated of course, there's the Internet of Things. How well is that going? The Internet of Things being a platform contributing to tech entrepreneurship as a place for the entrepreneurs you're looking to partner with, the startups you mentioned earlier. So this is uh, probably one of our first things that we are doing as MTN Business, where we're saying we want to promote local innovation. And we've built this platform of 
Internet of Things. Running on top of that platforms need to be solutions that are locally relevant. And who are the best people? People who are closest to the problems. Hence, we have invited students, a lot of entrepreneurs, to, to say, you know, guys, in the agriculture space, in the fleet management space, in these, all of these spaces, in the security space, can you come up with solutions that can leverage this platform? If your solution is relevant, if it's workable, as people pay and they're using your solution, we will have a revenue sharing model. And it is not going to just be limited to South Africa, it's going to be across all of the territories where MTN is operating. That, to me, is a very good statement coming from MTN because, you know, the thing that is going to help us solve the challenges of unemployment, especially youth unemployment in our country, is small business. And that effort, the work that we are doing there is contributing directly towards supporting small businesses. We'll end this conversation with where it began. I asked you what that little boy would think of who you are today. I think he'd be impressed. I do wonder, though, if the world he grew up in, in the context of at least corporate now, how different this world in corporate is to the world he came up in, in terms of the limitations based on skin color, based on ethnicity, based on, you know, where you're from. I'm talking about issues around affirmative action, black economic empowerment. Are we making progress in this space? Speak to me as a corporate giant that many will look up to. And I don't know, perhaps encourage, perhaps endorse, perhaps uh, rebuke. I don't know. We have chosen to end this thing. <laughs> I like challenges. <laughs> okay, listen, I would say that we have not changed much. When I look at the, at my time, you know, as I was growing up versus where we are today, nothing much has changed. You know, politically we can go and vote for whoever we like, but uh, if, if you look at the corporate world, it's still dominated by special uh, by specific race groups. I remember in my previous job at Microsoft, one of the things that I used to say there, when I'm looking at a, a manager or a leader, I can I can pick up what, what is it that you are thinking. What do you mean that you can pick up? No, I can I can read your mind talking nonsense. <laughs> I can read your mind because I can I look at your actions. For example, if I look at what kind of people have you employed? You had five opportunities to hire. What kind of people did you recruit? You will find that typically people have recruited people who are the same as themselves. Male, if this, the person who's recruiting is white, that person is likely to have recruited a white person. If the person is black, likely to be black, you know. So my point about this is that look at promotions, you know, look at how they have promoted the salary increases of their people. It will reflect who they are. And these, to me, these are the problems. I'm talking, these are the things that I was dealing with only last year. You know, it's not like it was 20 years ago. So we still have these challenges. But I think, again, what I'm seeing is that the, the opportunities, at least they are there. We need to go grab them. We need, as black people, we need to be aware that things are not going to come easy. Accept that. Take that as a fact. Things are not going to be easy. Okay, I'm accepting. So what is it that I need to do in order for me to stand out? Accept. If you are, you are surprised in a positive way, so that's great. But most of the time, you'll find that things are tough. And just accept that things are going to be like that. And then make your plan accordingly. That's how I would like to end this.
Now, word on the streets is that MTN is in the process of reinventing itself, uh, moving from being strictly a mobile telco to being a tech services company. I'm just wondering, will they pull a Google to Alphabet move? And of course, they, as we all know, they're struggling with issues around trust and integrity, given their woes in various countries on the continent. It remains to be seen how they'll yet leverage their pretty impressive African and Middle Eastern footprint. Uh, Who will they partner with? What does the future look like for this uh, South African tech giant? Well, it all remains to be seen. Now, Ashley Vizi is the chief information officer at uh, Barclays Africa. He has a truly international career, and we're obviously watching things over at Barclays Africa very closely at the moment following the announcement of their plans to let go of APSA. There's a lot of fun picking Ashley's mind uh, given his exposure to developing markets in Asia. So I'm going to play a snippet from my conversation with him in which he reveals something very unexpected. Do you own any wearable technology? If so, tell us why. And if not, why not? Well, I, I do have a yeah, I, I have an Apple Watch. Um, as I said, we were the first bank to launch um an app on the Apple Watch in Barclays Africa. Which he's not wearing at the moment, of course. Which which I'm not wearing because it's it's packed in my suitcases. I'm getting on a plane to London tomorrow. Nice um, save. <laughs> but I also have an interesting experiment uh, which is embedded in me from 2007 when I was in um, Asia, in Thailand, and I wanted to get my team to think a little bit differently uh, and to experiment in new technology. And the idea was... The challenge was how can we completely kill plastic cards because consumers in Thailand, Thai uh, citizens, are, are very quick to move between banks. And it's very easy because the bank will, the receiving bank or the new bank will set up all your standing orders and everything, right? So they'll issue you a new plastic card, credit card, debit card. So we said, well, how can we make customers more, more sticky? So we came up with an idea of injecting an RFID device radio frequency identifiers, the size of a grain of rice, injecting that into an individual. So then, in theory, you could walk to an ATM, wave your hand, be recognized by the ATM, and then just put in your PIN code. So no plastic cards, right? And if the method of authentication is embedded in someone's body, there's probably a strong chance they're not going to move banks very often. So it was an experiment. It never became live. And then my team turned around and said to me, that's a great idea, boss. We need a guinea pig. Guess who the guinea pig is? You've got a grain of rice in your body right now. Yeah, it's just here. I mean, clearly your, your listeners can't see that, but uh, it's, in, it's injected into my hand. It's, it's the same kind of device that you put into a dog or a cat, you know. And so we got that working with one of our ATMs and actually with one of our teller systems. Um, it was never going to be commercial. You can't imagine the Bank of Thailand allowing a bank to inject their customers. I'm speechless, actually. I'm re- I really am. I asked that question without <laughs> any expectation you give me an answer quite like that. But the effect that it had upon the team, the technology team, uh, the next year ahead, there was a whole bunch of new innovations and crazy ideas that were coming up. It just got people to see the light and that we had to move the bank forward. We have to keep reinventing ourselves and experimenting and probably – Nine times out of ten, none of these ideas would <laughs> would be commercial. But if there was one that would, then that's worth making a bet on.
Now, I have to say that revelation came near the end of our conversation and took me quite by surprise. The one thing I didn't ask him, though, is what he does if he's tired of it and wants to take it out. I wonder how much of a mission that would be. Another interesting conversation I had was with Alan Knott Craig Jr. Of course, now he's the founder of both Project Eastseaswe and Hero Telecoms. And he's famously the son of Alan Knott Craig Sr., who is currently the CEO of CellC, uh, the mobile network in South Africa. Now, here's a clip of Alan Ott Craig Jr. setting me straight on some of the misconceptions people tend to have about uh, his being the son of one of Africa's better-known executives within tech. Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure what the biggest misconceptions are, but I mean, I know you know, my old man had a bursary at the post office. He worked his way up through the post office and telecom, you know, kind of got quite high up. And then in 1994, he was asked to run Vodacom. And he, he never owned a share in Vodacom, so... I think a lot of people think he owned a stack. He actually never in, in his entire life owned a share in Vodacom. But he ran it and he built it. And there's a lot of money at Vodacom, so people think, therefore, that he had a lot of money. I mean, he really came into money, I think, in the late 90s. Sadly for me, that is after I'd left home. So until then, you know, we didn't have... We were comfortable middle-class life, but it wasn't, um, we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, I went to University of Port Elizabeth because my old man couldn't afford UCT. So, you know, I was quite... In, in, a, in retrospect... At the time, I felt it was a bit unfortunate to miss the, the ship coming in. But um, in retrospect, it turned out to be great because I didn't grow up um, with, with a lot of money in my life. So that gives you interesting perspective, having grown up the way you did and having seen your parents come into a standard of living you didn't grow up with. What, what are sort of the things that stand out for you in terms of, wow, that was so profoundly different to how I grew up and where they live now is so profoundly different to how you know where we lived before and our habits are different maybe we holiday differently what's what's super different so think around the time the money started to flow in and you thought flip these guys are actually doing quite well i can't really say i mean i can see my little brother he's five years younger so he certainly had more of uh you know he had a new car in first year type of thing but um you know the thing for me the real big difference is that my whole life i remember switching off the lights when i left the room we used to get clapped by my folks if we didn't switch off the lights. If we were wasting electricity, and there was a point in time which, when that stopped happening. So I think it's inculcated into me, so I still switch off the lights when I leave a room, and that's the big difference. You know, I grew up thinking about electricity. Well, that'll certainly teach you not to judge a book by its cover, or in this case, a son by his father. No. Justin Spratt is Chief Growth Officer at Quirk, uh, which is easily one of Africa's fastest growing digital agencies. In the clip I'm about to play, he explains why he's bullish on Africa as a global center of growth and why he reckons that there's no better time than right now to launch a startup on the continent. I'm very bullish on Africa. I'm very bullish on South Africa. I think there are some significant macroeconomic headwinds, not least of which emanating out of, out of Europe and especially from, the, from Eastern Europe and Russia. And that has an impact on Africa because obviously um, those European and first world budgets are spent in Africa. And then, of course, you have the oil price, which a lot of African countries rely on. A lot of government budgets have spent against this you know, oil price at $100 and now it's $50. So they'll have budget deficits and that'll, that'll fly on to business. So there's a lot of headwinds. Having said that, I think it's actually almost irrelevant um, what's happening in the macro economy for, for technology startups. I think the economies are sufficient. The, the actual economics to make a startup survive is, is small enough that none of that should really matter on aggregate. So, you know, my advice to the guys that I chat to is you can disrupt any time. And in fact, if you prove a model in, in tough economic times, it's a good indicator of success. It's, 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 if you can make it work in the tough times, you're going to fly in the good times.
I haven't had nearly enough conversations with women within uh, Africa's tech scene. Uh, Mati Modise is one of the rather impressive figures that I had the opportunity to chat with. Of course, Rebecca Nchong, who we featured in last week's episode, I uh, also had an opportunity to have a, a very long, in-depth conversation with her. Very interesting. However, it's my conversation with Matsi I'll be drawing a clip from today. Uh, she is the MD of Simodisa, which is a South African industry-led initiative which uh, was launched to address the hurdles faced by small and medium-sized enterprises and startups. She is a, an activist at heart, and in the next clip, she talks about asserting herself with confidence in a corporate scene which doesn't feature too many black women in leadership positions. I don't see color, and I don't see gender. And I do struggle when I am now in an environment that wants to engage on color or engage on gender because, like I said earlier on, I just have created my own world. And in that world, I don't see any differences. It's just people that want to do something epic, people that want to disrupt and people that want to pursue their passion. So, um, yeah, I would struggle in an environment where now I have to deliberate on I'm a woman and I'm struggling and there's a glass ceiling. In my world, there's no glass ceiling. In my world, you know, the world is your oyster. Um, everything is out there for you to go and get it. So, um, no, I don't have those kind of complexes, not at all. What do you say to, you know, young women listening to, to this conversation who perhaps do trade on those metrics? You know, South, South Africa makes it very difficult not to think racially or <laughs> to racialize even the most basic elements of life. And yet, to be fair, there's enough in our reality as professionals, as entrepreneurs, perhaps as activists, that reminds us that things aren't as they should be. What would you say to someone in, in trying to find a happy medium? Well, I would say that don't be a victim, you know, whether of color or gender, you know, so don't conduct yourself as a victim of a situation. And by doing that, you're literally liberating yourself from now falling within a category and within those categories are challenges. So I don't like people that victimize themselves. There's a lot to, you know, when you, it pains me every time I walk around and there's young black people who don't have jobs, young black people who are doing menial jobs, you know, whereby it's like, well, you're young, you're black, you're a woman. There's just so much opportunity. The only thing that's stopping you is your ability to see those opportunities. Because what sets myself apart to somebody who, will be comfortable and happy doing something that's not really going to add much value to our economy or to their own lives, it's because I choose to see the other side, which doesn't have boundaries, which doesn't have limits. I choose to say, no, I'm going to go beyond that. I thrive when people tell me I am young, I am black, and perhaps this is not your world. And I'm, I'm like, well, I'm going to show you that this is my world. So in a very... Um, latent way i'm quite a competitive person i always stretch myself and not to prove anything to anybody else but to prove it to myself you know because i'm all for results and and achieving things so it's a function of well you know i've set the bar the bar is quite high now i need to reach that bar and i need to excel because i mean i love the fact that i'm working with amazing people now at simodisa who are globally um, I would say globally because, I mean, our chairman, Peter de Villiers, has, you know, he's a Cape Town startup that's scaled up globally. So I love the fact that I'm working at that level. And I'm never happy when I'm in an environment that's not an A-team environment. 
Now, Brandon Doyle is the co-founder and CEO of Africa's uh, largest technology, media, and telecommunications sector-focused fund manager, Convergence Partners. Now, they're invested in the likes of Dimension Data and most famously in the undersea cable company, Seacom. Now, given the varied nature of investments that uh, Convergence Partners has in its portfolio across the continent, I was curious to know if they've ever experienced a conflict in their pursuit of profit, given that many of the projects they're invested in are for the public good. Often... Those kind of deals are shrouded in politics. Here's what he had to say. First of all, the sort of public sector touch points for our business are maybe less than you would imagine. So it's very much around the regulatory framework in a, in a country. What's their policy around broadband? What's their policy around wholesale pricing? What's the policy around uh, rights of way in terms of network build and the like? So those are really the touch points for us into, if you like, the public sector. Um, most of the businesses we invest in are, as I said earlier, B2B, and the customers are network operators, uh, large corporates and enterprises, global carriers, um, global media and content owners. So we don't necessarily have kind of deep exposure to kind of the public sector in our business. Um, and I'm saying that, as I said earlier, again, we, we do maintain good disciplined relationships with regulators because at the end of the day, they're a, a strategic relationship partner for us. You, know, you need to maintain those relationships rather than uh, see them as being a police force or in opposition to what you're looking to do. The, the issue around sort of conflict between public interest and, and returns doesn't really exist just yet, uh, and I think that's because the opportunity for, for broadband, if you like, um, uh, upliftment is so, so big right now, and the numbers are so, just so... Uh, so large in terms of needing to bring more and more people on net um, that um, that I think there's still sensible ways to construct projects where they can be money making and return generating for their investors but still bringing a high quality service and and cheap broadband to people that don't currently have it and we've seen that in a number of the networks we've invested in to date is that uh, the rate at which you bring prices down in the broadband environment is heavily uh, surpassed by the rate at which demand takes up, up, up volume. Um, so you're still getting very positive growth uh, in these networks. And finally, our very first and still our highest rated episode ever featured a gentleman named Trevor Wolf. Now, he's the managing director of a crowdsourcing company called Spring Leap. The conversation stands out for me because of how open Trevor was in walking us through the graveyard of his past experiences. He pointed out where the bodies were buried, as it were, and uh, he shared quite freely on what he's learned from each setback he's had in his career. Now, here's Trevor with one of the most profound failures he encountered in his career and how he bounced back. WPP is the world's largest ad agency holding company. They have about 160,000 employees worldwide. Yeah, they're a monster. I, I've actually worked for one of their subsidiaries in, in South Africa, TNS Research Service. Of course, I started at TNS. Um, TNS was an independent company with 17,000 employees and was gobbled up by WPP um, while I was there. So I went through that acquisition. Um, but yeah, they're, they're also gobbling up all the agencies in South Africa as well. So I wouldn't say I was in the startup world. I was a more of a, a suit and tie kind of guy for seven, eight years. But I did get involved in a lot of product innovation at, uh, at WPP and was nominated to be part of these product teams where our mission was to bring products to market very quickly. So I got to see how a large organization does entrepreneurial activity. Um, I think that's what sparked my interest. Um, I ended up 
launching a business unit with a new CEO, got about 90 million rand in financing from WPP to build this business unit. And uh, two years later, we crashed it. (laughs) Oh my word. So I'm following your story and I'm thinking, wow, here's Jonas swallowed by this amazing whale, by the sounds of it. (laughs) And you're pretty happy inside this whale and you grow and you, you I don't know how far this analogy is going to stretch, but um, but anyway, so you grow inside this huge organization, which clearly got entrepreneurial spirit. They trust you with something awesome and you ruin it. Yeah, it was a pretty heartbreaking lesson. I I think um, your listeners will appreciate the biggest thing we did wrong was we locked ourselves in a room for a year and built products without talking to customers. That was mistake number one. We thought that we were building something that everyone was going to buy, that the market wanted, uh, which was basically a video analytics to help track online video viewing and add uh, occurrence data. And uh, so when we launched it and we found no one was very interested, we had to kind of scramble and try to educate the market why they need this. But uh, I think it was a little too late, um, too little too late. So almost sounded like you're going head to head with YouTube and Vimeo somehow. Uh, we got rights to monitor um, all of YouTube's traffic data, all of Hulu's traffic data, um, and all of the advertising occurrence on those platforms. But no one cared? Uh, no one cared because online video was still TV shrunk. You know, All the brands were just putting their TV commercials, squeezing them into a tiny box on the, on the web page. So no one was really caring about unique measurement or cared that they could target better or track better or tie to purchasing activity. That just wasn't a big pain point in the market. It was a very sexy product, but not a very useful product at the time. What sort of insights do you think you could have uh, gained by, by checking with the market first? And how would it have affected the, the product you eventually developed in that in, in, in that business? Yeah, I think one of the, the mistakes we made is we um, became our own hype machine. So we saw video viewing online was growing at about 40% year over year, which is a gigantic growth segment. Uh, advertising dollars were following that growth 40%. Um, but we never stepped out and said, this is still only one one-hundredth of the total advertising spend or one one-hundredth of the total media consumption. So we didn't put it into a larger context that 99% of dollars spent by brands or by media companies was still TV, billboards, radio, newspapers. The dynamics were changing, but we were just a little, maybe a couple of years too early. Um, and so when we presented to clients, we'd always say, is this look cool? Uh, but never took it a step farther. Like, um, would you pay for this? And, you know, what, what does they say? If a client says that looks interesting. It's a no. If they say yes, it's a maybe. And if they say here's $5, then it's a yes. So, um, we never got that $5. Yep. Trevor definitely keeps it real. I have to thank him and all the other uh, men and women who shared their insights with us on African tech conversations. We know so much about the major players in uh, the tech scenes of more developed countries like the US and and, and parts of Europe, but we know so little about the men and women, the the heroes actually, of our very own tech ecosystem here. And um, I have to appreciate their candor and their willingness to to have me ask, quite frankly, nosy questions, um, but uh, questions that I'm sure anyone who has an interest in what they've managed to achieve would, not, would want to know. And they've been excellent sports, and I want to thank each and every one of them for being part of the series. We obviously couldn't share snippets from every conversation I had, but you can check out every single one of them anytime you like at conversations.africantechroundup.com. That's conversations at africantechroundup.com. 
And once again, today's episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Audible. They're offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Now, check out a book called Really Professional Internet Person by YouTuber Jen McAllister. Through her pranks, sketches, and videos about everyday life, Jen, better known as Jen X Pen, has become one of YouTube's fastest-rising stars. Really Professional Internet Person offers both an insider's guide to building a successful YouTube channel and an intimate portrait of the surreal nature of quote-unquote insta-fame. Now get Really Professional Internet Person or any other audiobook of your choice for free right now at audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech. That's audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech. Otherwise, that's the week's show, folks. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all our listeners, to all of you who engage with us on social media, who converse with us at events like the annual roundup, which, of course, will be happening again this year in November. It won't be in South Africa, though. Keep it locked to find out uh, more on that. But uh, be sure to listen in next week for the next episode, which drops at 9 a.m. Central African time on africantechroundup.com. In the meantime, it's cheers from me, Andina Masugu. Thank you so much for celebrating our birthday with us. Peace out, Africa.